Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. We always pick a new film, either new in theaters, that doesn't exist anymore, but now new on streaming or new to streaming. Uh, what did we pick this week, Chris? Well, uh, yeah, we went back to 2008 for a little movie that uh, I realized uh, upon rewatching it for today's episode that uh, I believe we were exactly the age of the protagonists when it came really? out. Really? Oh, wow. I didn't realize that at all. Huh, uh, maybe you were one year older. because I know. I, yeah, I might I'm have been a little bit older, yeah. A little younger than you, but it's uh, the David Gordon Green directed, Judd Apatow produced Pineapple Express, starring Seth Rogen and James Franco. Uh, why did we pick this one, Dan? I, I, I mean, I feel like this was more you steer in the ship this time. I, I, I did not yeah. fight it. I did not fight it. You didn't but. fight it. I think for me, I have this weird obsession with this era of comedies mm-hmm. that if you follow Twitter, um, someone put out an article basically saying that Step Brothers was the peak comedy of that era. And I have decided to go on a very long rant on Twitter about this. I'm very passionate about the aughts comedies because I think we were of that age where they sort of hit the hardest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, like, to me, that era, let's say old school through Step Brothers 2003-2008 in uh, Pineapple Express uh, was a very kind of special moment in comedy. And so I kind of wanted to go back and see where I thought this fit into that sort of echelon or that canon of that improv comedy era uh, and, you know, I don't know. I just wanted I had not seen it since it came out, I don't think. And I wanted to see if it had any sort of legs to it whatsoever. Uh, you know, the basic plot of this movie, uh, if you haven't seen it already, is Seth Rogen uh, plays a process server uh, who's a stoner uh, and ends up getting embroiled in sort of a I would say maybe like a light noir situation. Um, uh, James Franco is his drug dealer. Uh, they basically go on the run from a drug dealing kingpin. Uh, who uh, Seth Rogen had witnessed murder somebody. Not really spoilers because it happens in the first 10 minutes. Um, but it's a very t- t- uh, you know typical stoner comedy um, and has a nice leisurely pace. Um, and it was kind of in this moment when Seth Rogen was super hot. Uh, he had super bad the year before. And of course he wrote this with his good friend uh, Evan Goldberg. And then James Franco as well was in a, a super hot streak. Uh, they first had teamed up on Freaks and Geeks. Uh, and it was kind of this moment uh, in the Apatow universe of comedy uh, where you had kind of everybody coming together. And I think the wild card here is going to be the director, right? David Gordon yep. Green. Um, you probably know more about him than I do. So what's your sort of take on him? Well, yeah, he I have to be honest, I was, uh, you know, getting deep into the art film school stuff uh, in yeah. in college, you know, uh, taking film studies classes and uh, I absolutely fell in love with his debut feature, George Washington, from 2000. Um, it's not about the president. It's it's an Amer- a piece of Americana, if you will. Um, but it's an absolutely gorgeous film that is more in the vein of Terrence Malick than Judd Apatow. And so it's very confusing. Uh, it was to yeah. me when I heard the news that David Gordon Green was going to do a stoner action comedy with uh, Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen. Um, and yet uh, I, I, I I have my issues with the Apatow verse. I, I am not <laughs> a huge fan of the bigger uh, movies of uh, 
especially the ones directed by Apatow, like 40 year old virgin and knocked up. Like, I think they're fine. I, yeah. I, I enjoyed watching them, but I have no desire to watch them again. Yeah. Um, but uh, David Gore Green clearly was like on the path of being an auteur. He also put an amazing movie out in 2004 called Undertow. And uh, that's what kind of sealed the deal for me. Uh, but he had also worked with uh, Danny McBride on a film called All the Real Girls in 2003 starring Zoe Deschanel. And that film, uh, while I don't think it's one of his better ones, it's definitely probably one of his most uh, memorable. It was kind of like his... Uh, his throughway into the the world of mainstream filmmaking because obviously after that Zoe Deschanel uh, easily became a star and then uh, Danny McBride uh, clearly just like a hilarious dude uh, on his own right in his own right and then he uh, basically brought David Gordon Green to the set of Knocked Up um, yeah. and that's where you know Judd and David met and Seth and it seemed to be like there was just some kind of, you know, magic kind of bromance, uh, which is obviously what the Apatow verse is all about. And they they gave it a shot. I'm not really sure why, other than that they were just yeah. kind of like high off their own success. What do you think was it that just made them basically feels like they just wanted to do it because they wanted to do it? Like the movie is so feels so haphazard not only in its improvisational yeah. nature but also the very uh, one of the most interesting tidbits I think and I think um, is one of the saving graces of the movie is that uh, it was originally going to be Seth Rogen in the pot dealer role and James Franco in the process server role and uh, that just seems too easy and because Franco wanted to try playing like a completely out of his mind drug dealer uh, they they switched roles and I think that's one of the like weird choices along with choosing David Gordon Green to direct this that just makes it something special if kind of an afterthought or kind of just like a friends well, hanging out yeah I think you I think you hit it on the head and how did this happen right so if you put it in sort of the time when it came out, it came out in 2008 that was sort of I think the end of that period that we were talking about and so Apatow could basically do whatever he wanted Seth Rogen could basically do whatever he wanted um, you had you thinking back to that era, you know, not just Forty Year Old Virgin uh, and Superbad uh, and Knocked Up, Wedding Crashers, Shaun of the Dead, Anchorman, Old School. Rated R comedies essentially were in a pinnacle in that decade, right around mm-hmm. this time period. And 2008 especially was a moment when it kind of all crested. You know, in 2008, you had Tropic Thunder, you had Role Models, you had Forgetting Sarah Marshall, uh, Zach and Marie make a porno. Uh, and of course, um, you know, Pineapple Express, I think it, everything was getting green lit. And it, it's kind of like how people joke about Netflix now. I think that everybody in, involved in this film, it was probably a bullshit idea they had when they were high. Let's right. be honest. And like that in that environment where there was a lot of privilege and a lot of sort of just the ability to make money appear um, an, an otherwise kind of off the wall and goofy idea uh, comes to fruition. I think that's exactly what happened here. Um, and you think about it too, you know, so it's kind of, we said it in sort of the rated R sort of peak of comedies in, in the 2000s and the aughts, but it's also kind of, you know, in the stoner comedy sort of history, uh, it feels kind of different, right? It doesn't feel like, and I tried to go back and look at other stoner comedies. Like, and I haven't seen how many, like Up in Smoke. Have you seen Up in Smoke, the original? I Cheech don't and Chong? think I've seen a Cheech and Chong movie all the way through, no. And so, and then you got Half Baked. 
Which, Classic you know, wasn't our, really good, right? No, but it was definitely, uh, like, requisite viewing for any teenage boy in the 90s. Of course, yeah. And then, I think, to a lesser extent, Harold and Kumar goes mm-hmm. to White Castle. I don't know, would you consider that, like, is that, like, a big movie from the aughts, or no? I don't even know contextually, because I was not a huge, like, no. uh, pot smoker, so I just didn't Right, know. it wasn't on my radar, Um I mean, I would say Method Man and Red Man's How High is the only other. Yeah. From like, what was like <laughs> the only other touchstone. And Dude, Where's My Car? I mean, that was. Yeah, kind of a light. Yeah, definitely a stoner comedy. Yeah. Um, and it kind of, you know, were we clamoring for a stoner, stoner comedy in 2008? I don't think so. No. <laughs> uh, I think it was just sort of, it just happened because people wanted to do it and they were kind of bored. And I think Apatow had the original idea, didn't he? To do some sort of action exactly. weed comedy. Uh, and he knew that Rogan and Evan could write a good script and it sort of everything started to come together. Um, but it is one of those. It does have that feeling when you watch it. Uh, it. It feels like an afterthought for two reasons. One, because it came at the I think the end of a certain era of comedy uh, as it sort of changed over to more of a hangover style, uh, which had, what came out in 2009. Uh, and also the fact that it just it would have never normally gotten made. Uh, right. outside of that environment sort of a feeding frenzy for for new ideas from that group of people um and sort of you know what are some other sort of tidbits about how this thing sort of came into being well yeah so Apatow seemed to kind of i don't know if it was on the set of knocked up or you know shortly thereafter where him and gordon green met um where essentially he wanted to you know marry those two ideas and i think another uh piece of stoner comedy that is missing in this equation that seems to be t- that needs to be talked about because it's kind of the only other movie that I can think of that did marry those two ideas of like noir action with, you know, stoner silliness is the big Lebowski. Right. Yeah, and, of course. And of course, I think if anything, that's the only kind of reference point that makes sense to get somebody like an auteur such as David Jordan Green yeah. involved since it's a Coen brothers movie. It's beloved by both, you know, like nerds that, you know, dissect everything minute by minute as well as people that just want to like have a fun hangout movie for their friends and so like it does seem like when they started putting the script together um specifically the story credit goes to judd and the script credit goes to um rogan and goldberg and as we saw with super bad like these two have kind of like it's almost like a magical like affleck damon in the 90s kind of chemistry where it seems like it's very clear like each one knows their role rogan's in charge of in charge of the gut busting laughs and goldberg's in charge of like the touching friendship piece and uh it it worked like gangbusters and super bad uh that's probably the only other apatow produced comedy of that era that i would say is not just like laugh out loud hilarious but actually like really sentimental in all the right ways and i think yeah. that's another element to to the script of pineapple express or of the script that they they used anyways because obviously so much of it was improvised um that uh really made this come together because not only did rogan and goldberg have that in the script writing process but then also um they uh rogan and franco plus i would argue mcbride who was originally yeah. you know killed in the in the script and they just had so much fun working with him on set that like you wouldn't have that yes trite but also just really heartwarming diner scene at the end where the three of them are best buds uh and of course mcbride's uh you know connection to gordon green and clearly they 
knew exactly how to how to work together as a team. It's just like that right confluence of like those three different pairs and then Judd overseeing everything and everybody's on the right page and it ends up being something really really special even if like it's more it's, than its parts right exactly like it, yeah, exactly it's in that's interesting you bring up mcbride because i re-watching it uh there's this scene where you know he's supposed to essentially get killed off and it seems like he gets killed <laughs> and it almost seems like that was supposed to be what's happened in, in the entire sort of framing yeah. of the story and then he just comes keeps coming back which becomes its own little joke right uh almost like his little like zombie mcbride um but you know one thing that sort of stuck out to me and you know, there was always this conflict back then with these types of comedies and specifically the improv style where, you know, is it too improv Is it too loose? Um, and I think this rides that line really pretty well, actually. And the mm-hmm. scene that, I, you know, I'll call out and we have some production notes on it and sort of that fight scene. Right. right, the Franco, um, the initial one at McBride's yeah, house, yeah, at McBride's house, where it kind of reminds me of that fight from They Live, mm, where yeah. it's just like this extended sort of slapstick, um, sort of gonzo fight, um, but which clearly there's no way they really could have just scripted all that. A lot of that was made up on the set as they were doing it. Right. Do you think that that looseness? How much does it add to this movie and how much does it take away? Because it is definitely, and they quote, tons of it was improvised. Like they said over and over again in interviews, you know, especially like Craig Robinson, the hitman sort of stuff. Like I think in certain instances, especially relating to Craig Robinson, who clearly improvised a lot of his lines in in his moments, works really well. But how, how well does it work as a broader narrative technique, do you think? it's 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 tough to say man i mean those are watching it for i mean i think i probably watched it like four or five times uh on dvd at, plus seeing it in the theaters uh i was a huge fan of it when it came out i mean it, it was it was prime material for like 25 year old like still stuck in adolescence trying to figure out how to grow up which is exactly what the protagonist is and yeah. so part of that uh, part of the attractive nature of that is to just kind of go along with just like the goofiness. And the, the thing is that like, yeah, some of the performers are clearly better at it than others. And so it, it took me out of it when Kevin Corrigan tried to do it. Like, I like the guy like credit where credit's due. He's been around since Goodfellas. Yeah, good. yeah. Um, but like Craig Robinson steals every scene that they're in together. And same thing with, uh, Gary Cole and Rosie Perez like I, I like them a lot I think they're both really funny and talented people but they clearly have you know improvisation is not their strong suit so every time we see that and then there's also the whole you know speaking of like the improvised fighting like I yes I absolutely ate up every second of that initial fight <laughs> in McBride's house because McBride is so physical and the dialogue is so uh, crazy like there's a right before that fight happens there's a great quote from David Gordon Green in one of the interviews he did where like he talks about how you know he he always wanted to like do some he, he likes doing movies that are one of a kind right yeah. and uh, that clearly goes back to his more serious work in the early 2000s but then here like the the line that McBride says just out of nowhere that you can you would see how surprised Rogan and Franco is that he says like and then you ate a box of nerds out of her butt. 
like, that line is just like you like you're shocked even if you've seen everything you're like, i know what? <laughs> it's such a good line reading and it's clearly let's just like come up with in the spur of the moment and it works because he does so good at that but then the, when you get into the, like the huge battle at the the underground uh, compound at the end yeah, i definitely got yikes. tired of it all by then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, but the question is, why did you get tired of it? Like, why? And that, I think that's the general consensus of this film is that, uh, you know, we'll get to the reaction part of it in a bit. But it seems like the first two thirds work works pretty well. Yes, yes. Uh, and the final third is just it's messy. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really tie up a lot of the emotional narratives that right. are going on. It's both and, too much and not enough. It just yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's sort of you know you look at like a couple of the quotes that you know we're talking about here with David Gordon Green. You know, um, I never brought the script to set. I never even use it. <laughs> yeah. If the scene is working, then it's working. I mean, to me, that is a mind-blowing statement to make as a director, mm-hmm. right? Like, I just can't even fathom that you wouldn't be shooting from the script exactly word for word. And the improv would kind of be just let the let the tape run for extra, let the film run for an extra minute and just see what, do it different ways. But he's not even using it for basic structure. It yeah. doesn't seem like. Um, I find that kind of mind blowing. But the, the thing is, it doesn't necessarily translate on screen, that looseness. I think in certain instances it does, like the fighting, but the actual emotional beats of the story are pretty strong, mm-hmm. I would say, up mm-hmm. until the last third. Yeah. Uh, even the stuff with the girlfriend and like even those scenes like being at the parents' house where, yeah, do you really need this? Probably not. But it kind of works to hit a certain point about where um you know seth seth's characters is at in life and where he wants to go and how he feels um there's actual depth there uh mm-hmm. which you can't get by improvising like it has to be written on a page as a narrative arc emotional arc of a, of a story so i thought that like it, it it walked that fine line and kind of fell off in the final third and i think that's unfortunate because if they were able to stick that landing a little bit more it could have kind of i think moved up a tier in that sort of Ots uh, comedy uh, sort of ranking for me personally, at least. Agreed. Um, agreed. What do you think? You know, what was the reaction to this movie when it came out? I mean, I, like I said, I mean, I was I was blown away by it, and I think that there was like just a perfect synthesis of like I was still watching as were, I was. Wait, 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 we gotta go back. You were blown away by this movie. I was. I was just in stitches. The second I left that theater, I wanted to watch it again. That is wow! I did not know this. Yeah. Oh yeah immediately like skyrocketed to to the top of my like favorite movies of that decade which is insane because there's there's no way it's in there (laughs) what do you think it was outside of like the coming of age story and the kind of zaniness of of the script and and the acting what do you think it was that connected so well with you at that age you know yeah and i was trying to to revisit that as i as i rewatched it last night and i i really think that like the uh, you take away take away the last third and like yeah. still like you have a hundred minutes approximately, maybe 90 of just like scene by scene that they clearly just had the chemistry perfect. You brought up the dinner yeah. scene, Ed mm-hmm. Begley Jr. and Nora Dunn Amazing. as the parents yeah. just knock it out of the park. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, and yeah, it's so good. I mean, and then you've got the intro with Bill Hader doing like the first weed reference is like him doing a mouth jazz solo. Like. <laughs> I, what do you think of your superiors? And he starts like <laughs> scatting, <essentially>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Buddy Rich style. Like, yeah. I think that's it. It's like it's it's a stoner comedy that is so out of left field that, but still like very 
much concerned with like giving you really big belly laughs not like big lebowski where like i love the movie but it's very much like it's trying it's giving you like head scratchers and like a couple like laugh out loud moments but for the most part it's it's a coen brothers movies it's a it's you know it's a it's a, a strange character study you know mixed in with philosophy and nietzsche and stuff like that but yeah. here it's just like the, it's just so free-flowing and even like the shaggy qualities uh are, are still like something to be admired i think from yeah. the perspective of like this this is a like it's just like joy emanating from it like this is clearly like a bunch of people that had a ton a fuckload of fun just filming this yeah and a lot of money too and gordon <laughs> says something about it it's basically right. i had 10 times more freedom on this movie than i did in any other movie uh because there's no financial burden and so you know i think that they not not a blank check but pretty darn close to what david gordon green is used to right um and i think that like that lended itself to that openness and that looseness and that improvisational the sort of the environment that would allow them to improv constantly and feel comfortable experimenting and it, you could just see it and feel it on the screen pretty constantly um you know how did this actually do when it came out back in the day critics didn't love it right <laughs> um some all critics score um currently 68 percent on rotten tomatoes 6.3 out of 10 that's not good uh top critics is even lower 51 percent 5.1 out of 10 actual score that's terrible um, the audience score as it sits now 73% 7.5 out of 10 that's significantly higher uh, letterboxed 3.3 uh, out of 5 that's kind of a little, little bit surprising I thought it would be like 3.5 or higher mm-hmm. uh, they're mm-hmm. very picky on there those letterbox people uh, 6.9 out of 10 on IMDB that's actually surprising like I thought it would be like at least 7 um, and a cinema score of B plus uh, so critics didn't like it at all uh, when it came out, and I remember that. I remember there being a very muted response to it. I think people were kind of sick of the genre yeah. of the Apatow universe, rated our comedy stuff that was happening because there had been like you know five films this year that were kind of in the similar vein. Um, cinema score of a B plus though is is actually not that bad for something like this. Um, although it, there's one one thing to note though the cinema score. Everybody knows going into this movie knew what it was right. It was a pop movie. It's a, a stoner movie. It was marketed that way at 100%. CinemaScore scores people the Friday night it opens at 7 o'clock in like 12 different cities. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a little bit bizarre to me. It gets a B plus from a, a crowd that was clearly all stoners <laughs> that knew what the movie was going. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, you can't get a more stocked pond of you know what you're looking for in terms of a target audience. And it still gets a B plus. So I think there was some, you know what I think that is? That's the Gordon Green style. Yeah, like it's the way that he shoots things. It's the obtuseness. It's the strangeness sometimes um, of what he's doing. It doesn't also doesn't always connect with a wider audience. Uh, what about the box office? What did it do box office wise? Well, yeah, it had a twenty three million opening weekend, which uh, I mean, I don't know the that's the, not bad. The ra- that's not bad. No, but I mean, it's it's I mean, for a rated R comedy that you know uh had a uh, ended up having a box office run of 87 million box office worldwide 102 legs of 3.76 uh i mean that's good especially for you know something that did like i mentioned like kind of seem like an afterthought just people getting together and having fun um but i don't know what do you think in like the terms of uh um like long term like a lot of the these stoner comedies like half-baked bombed at the movie theater but then be, went on to become like a cult classic so 
in it's also hard to kind of gauge something like this where like yeah it did well at the box office but does it have the same kind of not like financial legs but like cultural legs like are people still i was trying to like find any like discourse about it today and it doesn't seem like there's as much love for it as perhaps there was when it came out or even like into the early 2010s when Seth Rogen was still I, I mean did did everything kind of die down for Seth Rogen I know he's got American Pickle coming out in a couple weeks but yeah I, I know that's an interesting question because I you know I came across I think a reddit thread about this movie recently and they were kind of going back and forth about it and oh this movie's so funny and stuff like that I kind of think it's going to be and I think Cheech and Chong is a little bit like this too like Cheech and Chong is sort of like this cultural touch point but like it's not like a popular movie that people just like, oh, I love that movie. Right. Uh, you watch it to smoke pot too. That's its purpose. Uh, and I think Pineapple Express might be sort of sort of caught in that in that cycle where they're not going to view it as a movie on its own terms. Mm-hmm. They're just going to view what it represents. I don't think Zoomers and people younger than us are really going to be that into it because pot's so. The one thing that's going to be missing for context with the younger people, let's say under 30, is that even 2008, pot was not legal in most places. Right. Right. And it's maybe not even most legal now, but weed is just a part of our culture now that it wasn't in 2008. And before, it was more of this sort of rebellion thing that you were doing. And it was a rebellion sort of sign of, you know, I'm a maverick. I'm doing my own thing. I don't care what my parents say. I don't care what the mm-hmm. government says. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge part of this film. Uh, I think that's going to be lost to a lot of younger people because they're going to be like, "What's the big deal? It's just smoking weed." Like I do that every, I do that every day. Like you <laughs> right. know what I mean? Like that that level of like being an iconoclast, it's not there anymore. Right. And so I think that that sort of edge to it and the stoner lifestyle, eh, I think, has changed a lot. And I think it's a lot more mainstream than it was back then. And this is, you know, if you were a stoner. Uh, you know, it's in the mid 2000s, you're kind of dropping out a bit from society. And that's mm-hmm, no longer mm-hmm. the case. Like people who are executives smoke pot all the time. So, like, right. I think that dichotomy is gone. I think it'll lose a lot from that. Do you think what do you think? Do you think it's going to still hold up? Yeah, no, I'm thinking about my experience as a high school teacher. And I it's definitely like not been a thing that's talked about in terms of like rebelliousness. You know, it, it, it's definitely like you know i I'm, I'm at the point where like my students parents smoke pot right yeah and, of course uh it, i mean it's interesting i did it it did like spark a couple bells while i was rewatching um in that opening montage where he's uh, interacting with the talk radio hosts while driving from location to location uh serving people papers and uh he says he says something to the effect of Seth Rogen's character. Uh, Dale Denton says, if marijuana isn't legal in five years, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like thinking to myself, like, it's 2020 now. That's like 12 years later. And there's still only 11 states that have, you know, flat out legality for marijuana for recreational use. And so on the one hand, it's like, yeah, we still have like a long ways to go to continue to like normalize and main- mainstream this. And yet, like, just that you know one-fifth of the country legalizing it and then it's you know medically available i believe in all states now where it's i think for the most part yeah 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 missouri it's legal but and also just like at least pre-pandemic anyways like if people wanted pot they'd only have to go to a few states over to get it 
And so I think there is like that element to it. And you make a good point because like for James Franco's character is like this, you know, shut in that always wears pajamas. And like maybe that just might not make sense to people nowadays. Yeah, <laughs> to I, newer I don't know viewers. if it would. I don't I don't know if it would really connect with them. It's sort of that outsider viewpoint. Um, and I think that like, I don't know, like when looking back on like Half-Baked and stuff like that, I wonder what people are going to think about that movie. I think that that's going to have more of a a cult feel to it for some reason um because this that was kind of its own little island uh and you're like you see that movie like how did this get made right whereas this one you're sort of like well yeah it makes sense how it got made who's involved it sort of had this cultural cachet in that moment uh and it kind of i think it i think pineapple express to me lives more as a part of that era of comedy and the apatow universe than it does the stoner mover movie universe if that makes sense mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. feels like much more indebted to the knocked up super bad era I mean it kind of looks like super bad like, I feel like they shot this movie in the same sort of like the valley of Los Angeles it has that really specific feel of like Van Nuys or Encino or something yep, like that yep. uh, so it feels definitely a part of that universe um, and so I don't know I don't know if younger people are going to connect with it on the stoner part but I think the comedy part of it is what's going to live on. And I feel like that improv and that chemistry between Rogan, Franco, McBride, and Robinson, and everybody in the cast, I think that's the spark and the magic here. And I think that's what I think people are connect with in you know 10 years or 20 years. Um, what did critics think, though, uh, when this thing came out? Yeah, so let's get into that. Like you mentioned, it was definitely uh, muted. Um, but there were a couple key uh, critics that... Uh, kind of caught on to what made it special uh most notably probably a.o scott then uh the head writer for the av club but now is you know new york times big shot guy um but he made a point that uh good scunner comedies like my Hollywood express have a rambling ran- shaggy dog nature that can make quirky little detours and non sequiturs more essential than story itself like that just goes back to the david gordon green thing where it's just like that seems like such a wild idea to get an indie auteur in here but he's able to make those detours feel a lot more naturalistic and it's almost like on a subconscious level and that's what makes it fun and unique because then you get into that and you don't really have to worry too much about you know going from you know plot a to uh to 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 plot b and then uh claudia pugue of usa today also uh gave it a good score saying rogan franco have great comic chemistry the initial scenes in franco's apartment absurdly funny and established their whacked out friendship and i think that's important to note is like unlike super bad where it's clearly like two best friends that have you know been friends since they were little kids like these are two guys that you know essentially out of loneliness uh connect with each other and they've only known each other for a couple months only as you know client and drug dealer and that that gives the the feeling more of like you know a journey style uh, uh as they run away from the corrupt cop and the the kingpin they they have that connection deepen and then roger ebert uh was actually one of the few kind of big time critics to uh note uh the the that more attractive qualities of pineapple express and he goes so far as to you know take the bromance Um, stereotype of the time to an even deeper level and he has this amazing quote in his review he says um does this make dale and saul gay even if they're not aware of it i think that describes the buddies in a lot of movies produced by judd apatow including the recent (laughs) stepbrothers 
and like the homoeroticism he's just i love that you know ebert's always known you know for the the bald-faced kind of just like blunt truth telling where it's just like everybody's talking about it in these very obtuse kind of new slang ways but ultimately yeah that's what it comes down to is uh the re- the reason this works is you know it's sensitive it's sentimental and it's straight up like just doesn't care um i will say that the one po- the one aspect of that that just like didn't hit right on a yeah. rewatch 12 years later is in the third act which we've said before has its problems but when they're trying to get out of the handcuffs oh, God. that's just like i mean that that that's like the gay panic of the uh, whatever that kevin james adam sandler movie was yeah it just did not and then like you know i, I think that that's an interesting point they bring this up over and over like the their sort of relationship and the male closeness here um and like they joke about it in the movie fairly often um but I also find that as a, a sort of a weird take on it because it's so clearly about two men who are emotionally maladapted. Like, let's be honest, most men are because of where society raises men. Mm-hmm. And it's I find it fascinating that like any time like two men are trying to be close with one another and there's emotions involved, there's always a sort of the homosexual sort right. of angle. It's sort of like. You're kind of like almost like it's and it was pretty incessant with this movie when it came out, I remember. And, um, you know, I always wonder about that because you even look back to like Superbad, which is uh, just kind of a beautiful film about male friendship. Um, but did it ever come up when people were talking about that film versus this one? I don't know. It's sort of like a it's a lens through which we looked at a lot of stuff back then and think to a lesser extent now that sort of when you see it i think when someone younger sees this movie that's not even going to be really a question they ask themselves right right? it's going to be just like hey these are two guys that kind of you know grow to love each other uh and that's they love each other as friends or whatever uh and there's nothing really to question or there's nothing really to define i guess is the point i'm trying to make and i think there's there's always people looking to define things in a movie like this it kind of reminds me a lot of being in grad school and we would like a read like a short story <laughs> and like you know yeah. if you're a marxist theorist you see all you see is capital and the bourgeoisie and all that kind of stuff if you're you know a certain other theor- theorist you see it's all sexualized and that kind of stuff so i don't know I, I just i thought it was kind of a sweet movie and i kind of like felt that that was pretty explicit that like these guys are all just chill friends and love each other and i think that's cool right. but, but um, that was weird for the 2000s like it was a shift and of course 100%. during that shift you're gonna have this overlap between you know gay panic and homophobia versus like genuine like love between two guys um on the negative front stephanie zacharik at the time of salon now the lead writer at time for film uh said apatow may have good instincts but that doesn't mean he has to follow every single one and the tedious stoner action comedy pineapple express is a case in point so a flip side to uh the the more uh, forgiving view of the detours and non sequiturs that A.O. Scott pointed out. And David Edelstein of uh, Vulture said it's empty and formulaic with plotting that's lazy even by stoner comedy standards. I don't think David Edelstein really understands what stoner comedies are. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Michael Srago of the Baltimore Sun said the plot is merely an excuse for the audience to get a giddy hit off some heady secondhand smoke while laughing and cheering at cartoon sadism that attempts and fails to put the slap back in slapstick. They just it, it's just bummer town like just yeah those negative <laughs> reviews are not really smart no like they're not really hitting it like i think you could really pick apart this film on a couple of levels uh you know the the lazy third act where the improv style falls apart 
um, the you know maybe the sort of blunted emotional journey that he goes on. What what's really resolved the protagonist at the end of this? Um, it, you know, but like they don't they just kind of go through the sort of it's more attacking who made it than attacking what's on screen. I think is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other sort of tidbit that I just want to mention before we close up the show is that you know we talked a lot about the Apatow universe and like kind of what he created with this cat this group of people. But in a recent, I don't know if you've been listening to the Office, Oral History of the Office podcast, um, but there's a moment in it where they talk about, well, how did you find all these people? And it ended up being this casting director, Allison Jones. And I sort of dove deeper into her career. She's the one who cast all of those people in Freaks and Geeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, She found Jonah Hill. She found Seth Rogen. She found James Franco. She's kind of the person that I think, you know, we talk about Judd Apatow and... Uh, all those people will fail, but I think there's a kind of unspoken or unheralded sort of um, builders and pioneers uh, like a- Allison Jones, this casting director that really brought these people out of obscurity uh, into the forefront that allowed this sort of era to take off. Uh, and so I just wanted to throw that out. There's a really good New Yorker article about what she does and how she does it. Um, in any event, so what do you, how do you want to close out Pineapple Express? What do you what are your closing thoughts on this film? Well, it was really fun to to, to look back on and uh, talk about um, more on like a visceral level compared to the other movies that we've watched where it's been a lot more heady um, or even just like uh, just like depressing, like the, the Kevin Bacon <laughs> or movie The Darkness. The darkness. Um, I mean, I think that's part of the, the, the takeaway is that it's it's a good r- reminder to just like inject some just joy. Not, not everything has to be. Uh, I mean, it's still like every frame of this movie is is beautiful because David Gordon That's Green fun. is behind it. But still, like, just it, you you got to let yourself have fun. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a great hearty laugh, and it's almost like a period piece when you think of it. Yeah, uh, of like the mid aughts and late aughts, it kind of will really take you to that time period in Los Angeles and what people are up to. Um, so next week we're gonna do uh, a new film. We're gonna do the rental. Uh, directed by Dave Franco, James's brother, keep it in the Franco family. It is his uh, first ever movie that he's directed. Uh, he co-wrote it with the mumblecore icon Joe Swanberg, who I love recently. Do you it, like him? Is that Joe the Swanberg? Drinking Buddies guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, I like a him movie okay. that I hated and then became <laughs> one of my top five movies of all time. So. <laughs> Uh, so he co-wrote the script with Franco. It sounds kind of like a really fun disaster. Uh, so I'm excited <laughs> about diving into it and see what they came up with. Um, and so that's what we're going to do next week. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. This has been Film Trace. Film Trace.